Would you pray with me? Gracious and loving God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The search for peace. So this is the second week of Advent, and our theme this week, as you may have heard, is peace. For being such a commonly sought-after objective, it's interesting to consider how differently it's defined and how it's pursued in different ways. It's a common topic raised by scholarship candidates and pageant participants when they're asked, what's an important goal for you in your life? What would be the greatest objective that you could pursue? Why, world peace, of course. But it quickly gets complicated when we try to explain what peace really is and how we would achieve it. The word peace is often coupled with serenity and prosperity, suggesting that peace is accompanied by calmness and abundance. There are no loud arguments and there's an absence of conflict. And everyone has the means to acquire the material wealth that they seek or desire. However, when we take a closer look at the moments in history that have been characterized as periods of peace, we can see there are many people during those times who were not experiencing serenity, and many encountered significant economic disparity. It's been said, for example, that the early first century was one of those periods of relative peace. At least this was the perspective of the Roman Empire because they had essentially conquered their corner of the world and there were no other nations around who could challenge them. This was a peace defined as an absence of all out war, but we know from scripture that the Jews were not benefactors of this peace. They were tasked with paying heavy taxes and were obligated to follow the edicts of the Roman government and Roman laws, which were clearly meant to favor the Romans. If the Jews had stepped out of line or openly defied the Roman occupiers, there was a swift and violent response, which was intended to persuade them to obey their current authority. This was a general policy of the Roman government known as Pax Romana, or the Peace of Rome. This was the environment of the first century into which John the Baptist and Jesus of Nazareth were born into. John was a, a few months older than Jesus and was very different than Jesus in many ways. Actually, he was very different than a lot of people at that time. He lived in the wilderness, ate locusts and honey, and dressed in clothing made of camel hair. John proclaimed a message of repentance that caught the imagination of all the nearby residents. And many people started going out to him at the Jordan River so they could hear his message and experience the ritual cleansing of baptism, which he offered. When the Jewish authorities started coming out to the Jordan to be baptized by him, John warned them about being hypocritical, saying that their claims to the birthright as God's chosen people would not be sufficient to get them into the kingdom of heaven. They had to take their repentance seriously. And there had to be real, observable consequences to their new way of life. After all, the one who baptizes not with water, but with the Holy Spirit and fire, was coming. And 
And he would naturally be able to discern what was in each person's heart. Simply saying the right words and participating in certain rituals was not what it would take that he was looking for. He would be looking for a change in heart. John was preparing people for the coming Christ who would look beyond the superficial characteristics like race and gender and social status for participation in his heavenly kingdom. He was looking for people who would worship God in spirit. There were times when Christians seemed to understand this. They got it for a while. But there were other times when they did not. Even in the early church, just a few decades after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, there were conflicts between the Jews and those who were not Jews or the Gentiles. One of the reasons that some scholars believe that the Apostle Paul wrote his letter to the Roman church was to address an ongoing conflict between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians in Rome. Around the year 50 CE, the Emperor Claudius evicted all the Jews from Rome because of disturbances that were taking place there. Claudius thought it was the Jews who were creating the disturbance, so he had them forcibly removed from the city. And this left only the Gentile Christians within the Romans within Rome to take care of the leadership duties of the church. After a few years, Jewish Christian families started to return to Rome, but the Gentile Christians were reluctant to give up their share of the authority and the power. The Apostle Paul was apparently aware of this conflict and sought to remind all the Christians of Rome both Jewish and Gentile, that each group was important in their own way. First, Paul points out that Jesus was a Jew, and he provided all his teachings and wisdom from the cultural perspective of a first-century Jew, using Jewish scriptures. He also pointed out that the Jewish scriptures predicted that the Gentiles would rejoice with his people, the Jews, and that the Gentiles would one day praise and worship the same God that is celebrated by the Jews. Both the Jews and the Gentiles were expected to come together with one voice so that they would glorify the God and Father of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Paul was seeking a way to reestablish peace within the, church, the churches in Rome by fostering mutual respect and promoting interdependence. In general, you can say that Paul was trying to facilitate peace in the Roman churches by encouraging the two groups to express love for each other. This is the path of peace that we learn from Christ, and it's the stark opposition to the policy of Pax Romana that the Romans used. Rather than using threats or intimidation or coercion, Jesus taught that the process of achieving real peace is through love. When we have a genuine concern for the well-being of others around us, whether we know them or not, we help create an environment where others want to do that for us as well. Eventually, this love and compassion spreads to everyone in the community. This is the kind of peace described by the prophet Isaiah over 700 years earlier than that. In our passage that we read this morning from Isaiah, 
we see a version of peace that's very different from the Roman version. As you may recall, the writings of Isaiah were created in three different time periods, with the first section being written as the Israelites were being conquered and forcibly exiled by the Babylonians. Within this context, we see a vision of peace develop where there is a complete absence of violence at all levels of creation. The wolf shall live with the lamb, a leopard will lie down with a baby goat, and a calf and a lion will feed with each other. The roles of predator and prey will be forgotten as the powerful learn to live without consuming the weak. And the naive, careless child is not injured because of a perceived threat to another frightened creature. Interestingly, Isaiah sees this situation coming about through the knowledge of the Lord. It's the understanding of God that all creation acquires in this vision through the stump of Jesse, which sparks these transformations. When creation is guided by the one who receives the spirit of wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, and fear of the Lord, the created come to understand the creator. And the urge for violence dissolves away. <coughs> Excuse me. Such an anointed leader or Messiah will rule with an eye toward the poor and oppressed, refusing to allow wickedness to exist anymore. This is the vision of peace passed down from Isaiah, which sounds remarkably similar to what we might expect to hear when Christ comes. So as we prepare for the coming Christ in this season of Advent, I invite you to reflect on our understanding of peace and how it can be achieved. Based on our passages today, I think we can make a few observations, a few general observations. First, there can only be true peace when the issues of injustice are resolved. When there is excessive inequity and that one group or nation is oppressed by another, there can be no peace. As Isaiah prophesied, the ruler of the coming kingdom of peace judges by righteousness and faithfulness on behalf of the poor and the oppressed. So those of us who desire to help usher in a new period of peace must also work towards addressing injustices wherever we find them. Secondly, a deeper understanding of God serves to su suppress an appetite for greed, envy, and jealousy. Those things that make the more powerful to want to consume the weaker. And by staying faithful to the teachings of Christ, we can gain a deeper relationship with God, naturally fostering attitudes of humility, gentleness, and kindness. In time, with perseverance, an environment of trust can develop where fear is diminished and misunderstandings can be resolved more peacefully and thoughtfully. World peace is truly an admirable goal. And through the gifts of grace and love, I think it's achievable. But as the church, the hands and feet of Christ, we must do our part to help make it happen. 
I encourage you today to consider how you can help prepare your corner of the world for that presence of true peace that will be ushered in with the coming of the Christ. Amen.